have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 14 as we continue our series in the book of Matthew. Um, as, uh, as we've been following Jesus and his ministry, you have seen how his, uh, his following has been growing, his fame has been growing, and uh, so has the opposition to him and his ministry. That has been growing as well. Even in the end of chapter 13, we didn't look at this passage, but at the end of chapter 13, he's rejected even in his own hometown. Um, and so we come to chapter 14, and we're going to look at the first passage here in chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, which is a significant event. It kind of takes our eyes off of Jesus for a moment, but it's a, it's a significant event that, that gives us a, even a more clear understanding of the kind of opposition that Jesus is up against as we see how John the Baptist is treated, the one who's been pointing to Jesus from his early ministry. And as we look at this passage, I think God encourages us to look at some things about ourselves and some things about him that we need to know. So listen to God's word as I read from Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12. It's printed in your order of worship if you don't have a Bible, and you can follow along there. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, passages like this are hard to read and think about, and it's, it's hard to even figure out sometimes, what are you saying here? Um, Father, we pray that your spirit would work in each of us, that you would help us to listen to what you want to say, and we pray that you would help us to see you, that we would see you more clearly that we would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, our first apartment as a married couple left a little bit to be desired. I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but basically, we, Kim and I, um, we lived down in Dunellen, if you know where that is, and, and we, our first apartment was in a, it was a house that was converted into five different apartments in a house. And, uh, and so we lived on the second floor. And to get into the house, you had to you know, park around back and then go up these stairs, this, this stairway up the back, and then um, that was the door. The only door you get into our apartment was that, that door from the back. And, and you opened up the door, and if you took a step in, your knees were already brushing our bed. See, the door to in, into our apartment was into our bedroom, okay? And so then you had a choice, okay? If you wanted to get into the rest of the apartment, to the living space, you had to either, like, scooch around the bed, or you could just kind of roll over the bed, or maybe hop over the bed, but that would be kind of rude, probably. So that was, you know, that's how you got into the rest of the apartment, the kitchen was like converted, like there was a little hallway, I guess, that was converted into a kitchen, so it was so small that like 
you couldn't even fit, you definitely couldn't fit more than one person in there. And the one person, if you ever wanted to wash the dishes or cook anything, you kind of had to Tetris yourself into the kitchen, you know? And the, the, the last thing, the, the weirdest thing about it is when we, when we moved in, we moved our stuff in, and then, like, in the living room, there was this one wall that was, like, you know, that wood paneling that a lot of houses used to have. I don't know if any of you guys still had that wood paneling or not, but there was one wall that was wood paneling, and, uh, and, and we put the couch in, and, and it was, like, right next to the couch was this wall, and as we were moving in, we noticed there was this, like, piece of stationery just, like, taped randomly to the middle of the wall, and it was like crooked and everything. It was like a little picture of a girl on it and some flowers maybe, just this random piece of stationery. I'm like, why is that up there? Who put that up there? And so I went to pull it down, and it turned out there was like this big hole <laughs> in the wall. And that's why the stationery was there, to hide the hole. And even though we like told our landlord about it, he never fixed it the whole year we were living there. And so we just left that stationery stuck up there on the wall just covering the hole, because, you know, as, as, as silly as the stationary looks, you know, sometimes you just, it, it, it covers up what you, what's, what's worse, you know. And uh, I think that this is a strategy that some of us use as we deal with life, um, when it comes to life. There are some things that we'd rather not look at, um, some things that in the world that we'd rather not look at, some things about ourselves we'd rather not look at, and it's easier to just kind of tape, scotch tape, some kind of, you know, piece of paper over that and not have to look at it. Um, and I think that's one thing you see Herod doing here in this passage. I mean, he doesn't stick up some stationery over his problems, but he has John the Baptist who's criticizing the way that he's living his life, and what does he do with him? He shoves him into a prison <laughs> so he doesn't have to look at him or see him anymore. And, and I think as hard as it is to figure out, you know, what is going on in this passage? What does God want us to see in this passage? Um, the, uh, the, the tact that I'm going to take here in this passage is, is what God does with all of Scripture often is he wants, us to, he wants to show us things, both about ourselves and about him. And um, when it's tempting for us, you know, in order to live a, a really a, a full and a healthy and a, and a growing life, one thing we need to learn to do is to look at the right things, okay? And so that's what we're going to do in this passage. We're going to look at a couple things. And, and there's a couple different things that I, images I want to use here. There's a mirror and a frame here I see in this passage. Um, those are different things that we use to look at things, right? A mirror is something you use to look at yourself. Um, and so there's a mirror here. If you look at the person of Herod, I think he, he acts as a mirror for ourselves in some ways. I mean, if we look at Herod, we might be able to see, if we're willing to consider it, we might be able to see some of ourselves in him. And then frames are something you put around pictures or pieces of art. To, frames you know, serve a lot of purposes, but one thing frames do is they, they kind of set that thing apart so that it hopefully draws your attention to that thing, right? And so in a sense, I think John the Baptist serves as a frame for us to see more of who Jesus is, okay? So that's what we're going to do as we look at this passage. First, we're going to look at Herod as a mirror for ourselves, and then John as a frame for who Jesus is, okay? So, so how does Herod give us a mirror to see ourselves. Um, when we observe a person in the Bible who is obviously making wrong choices, who is kind of obviously the, the bad guy here. Herod is, is the obvious villain in the story here, right? Or one of the villains. We have a choice. We can either, you know, be like, oh yeah, that's definitely the bad guy. I need to root against him. I need to hope for his downfall. I, need, I, I can judge him, you know. I, I could never be possibly like as bad as this guy. Or the other choice is to look at this person and say, you know, he's a human being. Am I similar to him 
in any way? Is there anything that, that, that he shows me about myself that maybe I need to repent of or deal with in my own heart? And so that's what I want to do here as, as we look at Herod. I think he shows us several things in the way that Herod operates here in his life that um, if we're willing to be honest, that maybe we struggle with as well. And so the first thing that I think Herod points us to is um, as you look at the way that he operates, the way that he lives, he, he uncritically pursues his own desires. He just does what he wants to do without thinking if it's right or wrong. Um, I read a quote, and I can't remember exactly what the quote is, by, by Bernard of Clairvaux, who's a, a famous Christian from many, many, many hundreds of years ago. And, and he said something about, you know, that, that there are some people who want what they want without thinking about if they should want it, you know. And that's what Herod is like, you know. He, what does he want? He wants his brother's wife. He wants his brother's wife. And he takes her. Actually, we know from other evidence, um, other, uh, other sources, that he actually ends up, his, his uh, Philip's wife divorces him, and Herod is married to somebody else, and he divorces her, and he ends up marrying his brother Philip's wife, which is wrong. It's not acceptable according to God's law. And John has no qualms about telling him and letting him know that, right? But Herod doesn't even think about it. He doesn't think about whether what he wants is right or wrong. And I think that is a very good description of many, many, many people who live in our world today that we all just kind of want to live the way we want to live without thinking about if it's right or wrong. We want, to, we, we want things and we don't think about if those things are things we should want or not. And I think that goes for us as Christians as well. There, there are areas in each of our lives that maybe we, you know, we live uncritically. We don't think about, does God really want me to be treating people this way, talking to people this way? When it comes to our money, you know, maybe we do give you know, to charities or to the church, but often when it comes to the way that we spend our money, how many of us are really thinking about and asking God what's right and wrong about how I'm spending it? Or do I just spend it, you know? Do I just spend it without really thinking that critically about it? And, and it goes for our time, how we use our time, how we schedule our lives and schedule our days. It, it, it goes for, you know, the things that we pursue, the goals that we have in our lives. Do we really think about what God wants? How often do we really think about what God wants? Or do we just kind of pursue what we want without thinking about if we should want it? Um, if, the, if, if you are single, for those who are single here, does that... Does that kind of describe the, your attitude towards your relationships, um, towards, you know, your, your desire for uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or somebody that you'd like to marry, you know? Um, how often do you really think about it? Is this, you know, what does God want here? Is this right or wrong, this person that I'm drawn to? Um, and so I think, I think, just like Herod, we often uncritically live our lives just wanting what we want, pursuing what we want without thinking about if it's right or wrong. Secondly, Herod does everything he can to avoid accountability, right? Um, John seems to be criticizing him here, you know. Uh, John preaches against him. He, he, John, John proclaims to him that what he is doing is not right. And so, as I've, as I've said already, what does Herod do? Herod gets rid of John. He puts him in prison. He puts him in prison so he doesn't have to listen to John anymore. He doesn't want to hear somebody telling him that how he's living is wrong. He doesn't want to hear someone, you know, being critical of him. And 
Again, I, I think this really describes a lot of us. How many of us really like to hear someone bring up something about the way that I am or the way that I'm living? And uh, our first response is to just like, oh yeah, like tell me more. Tell me more, tell me more about how I can change and grow as a human being, <laughs> right? I mean, for a lot of us, we, we avoid maybe people that force us to think about issues that we'd rather not deal with in our own hearts. Or at least when we talk with people, we keep things on a very superficial level so that we don't have to like possibly invite a conversation where they might say something that'll force me to rethink the way that I'm living. Um, or, or you think about it this way, you know, the people that, we're, that are closest to us, if, if, the people that you live with, maybe your spouse, when, when your spouse might suggest something that you need to change. You know, I, I've noticed, maybe you're, you're, you've been a little impatient lately. You've been really negative lately or critical. How do we respond? Often we respond in a way that will make sure they don't do that again, you know? Maybe we, we try to make them pay by, by giving them the silent treatment, you know, the passive-aggressive way of doing it. Maybe we retaliate and bring something up about them that we've been kind of keeping track of and storing up, and, and you know, like we bring just that, that moment to bring it out, just to, to inflict a little bit of pain so that they, we make sure they don't suggest anything bad about us again, right? We, in all sorts of subtle ways, avoid being accountable to people around us and try to push away any kind of um, critical input that will force us to think about how I, I might need to change. Um, third, Herod is characterized throughout this passage as a guy who is, is a people pleaser. Um, he's very concerned about his popularity. He's concerned about what people think of him. And actually, that actually leads him to make a good choice. He, he decides not to kill John, right? But it's not because he has some, you know, real, you know, good character trait is because he doesn't want to kill John because John is popular. And if he kills John, then the people are going to think less of him. And so the way that what people are thinking, his popularity dictates how he lives his life, the choices he makes, right? And I just ask you this, this question, how much are you influenced by others' opinions of you? How much are you influenced by, by wanting others to think well of you, of wanting to be popular, in a sense? Um, I, I'm sure that any students who are here, middle school, high school students, um, how much do the people that you sit with at lunch influence how you think and how you talk and what you do? Are you worried about what they will think of you? Um, if, if for, for all of us, we, we have a, you know, maybe a close group of friends, and, and we are very influenced by what they think of us often, wanting, to be, wanting them to like us. For some of us, it's, it's just even strangers, you know. I don't want any strangers to think poorly of me, and so that might influence what I say or if I say anything. You know, even on social media, how many of us are influenced by people that we don't even know or talk to? and what they will think. I think all of us, in different ways, in different levels, are, are very influenced by wanting to be liked and wanting others to approve. How much are you influenced by that? 
And lastly, Herod, Herod um, and this is related to that, Herod has absolutely no backbone whatsoever. He has no, he, he is uh, a coward. Um, and in the end, what happens? So he has, he's at this party. It, it describes how, how John is eventually killed. And Herod is at this party. And he's made this decision not to kill John because he's worried about what people will think of him. But then he, he has this party and his stepdaughter dances for him. And uh, it's very likely that it was like some kind of sensual dance. And, and he's like so pleased that he's like, I'll do whatever you want. And so she's influenced by her mother. And, and her mother encourages her to ask him to, to give her John the Baptist's head on a plate, right? And, and instead of being like, no, I've made this decision. I'm not going to do this. He's like, you know, he's afraid of what the people at the, at the party are going to think of him. He's afraid of what his guests are going to do. He's, he's already said, no, I, I, I can't back down from what I've said. And, and so he goes along with it. And John is beheaded. And his head is brought on a platter to them at this party. And so Herod is, is characterized as a guy who has no moral backbone whatsoever, right? Um, how much does that describe you? When you're in situations where, um, you know, the, the convictions of everyone else around you um, and, and is expecting, like everybody's expecting you to do what the rest of the world is doing. Um, how much are you willing to speak up for those who don't have a voice? Um, to speak up for what is right? To, to, how much are you willing to, to share the news of who Jesus is and your faith with him with other people um, who might you know, think less of you or reject you in some way? Um, how courageous are you? Or are you somewhat of a coward in, in some moments like Herod was? So those are, those are the things I think Herod, for me, as I look at him, I, I have to ask myself these questions, you know? Am, am I, how much am I uncritically, you know, living my life, thinking about whether God wants this or not, even in small areas? How much um, am I trying to avoid God speaking through others to me about how I need to change? How much am I influenced by others rather than God and what he wants? Um, it's good for us to consider this, to reflect on how we need to change and, and how Herod encourages us to change. But, but we can't stop there because the good news is coming. We also need to look at John and how he gives us a frame to behold Jesus. Because as I said before, that's what frames do. Frames serve a bunch of, of functions. But if you go to an art museum, almost all of the paintings are framed, right? And one of the things that frames do is they set those paintings off from the rest of the surroundings and they help us to focus our attention on the beauty of what is in the painting. And I think that's what John does here. That's what John's whole life has been about. It's been about framing Jesus. It's been about pointing to Jesus, showing the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. Even in the, the beginning of John's ministry, back in the beginning of Matthew, right? What was John doing? He was pointing to Jesus. He was pointing to Jesus. I'm, I'm not even worried that he'll hold his, his sandals. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with, the, with fire, with the Holy Spirit. He was constantly pointing to Jesus. And now, even in his death, John doesn't say a thing here, does he? And yet, here at the end of his life, I think he is still pointing us to the glory of Jesus. And how does he do that? 
How does he do that? I see three ways that he does this. One, I think John highlights the, this passage and the way that John is treated, the way that Herod thinks of John. It actually highlights the authority of Jesus, okay? Think about this. Herod is, he's stressed out, right? He's, he's, it seems like he's feeling guilty. This, is whole, this whole passage is a flashback, right? At the very beginning, it says, Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. And then what does he think of Jesus? He's like, oh, this must be John. John's come back from the dead because of what I did to him. And there's this flashback then of how he played the part in John being executed, right? And so Herod seems to have this guilty conscience, worried about, about worried that, that John has come back from the dead to hold him accountable, maybe to punish him, to judge him. Because John, in his, as he lived his life, he spoke with authority. And Herod knew this. Little does Herod realize <laughs> that this isn't John at all. This is somebody way more authoritative than John was. If he was afraid of John, he should have been way more afraid of Jesus, right? John himself said, I am not worthy to hold this guy's sandals. As authoritative as John was, Jesus was way more authoritative. Jesus had way more of a a, a place of authority to, to hold Herod accountable for how he was living his life. Herod shouldn't have been worried about John. He should have been worried about Jesus. I think, um, we all have different people in our lives that have authority over us. If you are kids, you have parents, and hopefully you respect them and listen to them, and, and you treat them as those who have authority. If, if, if for those of us who work, we have bosses, we have supervisors, we have companies that we work for that have authority over us, that hopefully we respect them and, and, and pay attention to them and, and listen to them in ways. We, we live in a country with a government, with laws, and hopefully even if we disagree with some of those laws and the way that the government is doing things, we should respect the government and respect the authority that they have. But ultimately, amidst all of, all of those authorities, the authority we should be most concerned about and most aware of is Jesus. He has greater authority and power and justice and righteousness than any of those people. And, and as we submit to all these different authorities, we should ultimately remember that he is our ultimate authority and be submitting to him in the midst of all these other roles that we have. I think that's one thing that, that John points us to is the authority of Jesus. But the second thing John's death highlights is I think G- he also highlights Jesus' death, the way that Jesus was going to die. Okay? The story here is brutal. And it, it's, it's seemingly senseless, right? It's hard to see this. Like to, for John to just be treated so unjustly for John to die in a way that he didn't deserve to die for John to die in a way that was humiliating to have your head cut off and then brought to a party on a platter to be executed at the whim of people who are careless and manipulative John didn't deserve to die like this one of the things I think that Matthew does in including this passage um, is, is he's giving us a little bit of foreshadowing of, of the way that Jesus is going to be treated as well. Um, one of the things that, that, that Matthew does here, he, he, he's, he make, he's careful to link John with Jesus. All throughout, his, all throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew, whenever John comes up, it's clear that John and Jesus are on the same team, isn't it? 
Even here, after John is executed, at the very last verse, it says, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. They went to Jesus and told him because they're on the same team. If this is how John is going to be treated by the authorities of that day, then this is how we need to expect Jesus to be treated as well. That's one of the things that Matthew is pointing out. And, and, and Matthew here, as he, as he tells us how John dies, he's preparing us for the fact that, yeah, Jesus is going to die in a similar way. His head's not going to be cut off, but he's going to be humiliated. He's going to be hung naked on a cross. He's going to be rejected and betrayed, and he's going to be killed unjustly. He's not going to deserve it. He's going to be killed unjustly by careless people, by manipulative people. That is how Jesus is going to die as well. Uh, here, Matthew points us to one of the key things that Jesus accomplishes for us. It's, it's his death that he dies to pay for our sin, to reconcile us to God, to, to make a way for us to be forgiven, to know God's love, to know peace, to have a relationship with him. Matthew's preparing us for that key moment of Jesus' life, his death. Lastly, this passage highlights the triumph of Jesus as well. How does it do that? Well, I think it's ironic. Herod hears about Jesus, right? He hears about Jesus' fame. What does he hear about Jesus? These miracles that Jesus is doing. He hears about this miraculous life. And he he hears about this guy who is doing all these miracles and he, has, he says, oh, here, here is a man who obviously death has no hold over. And so superstitiously, he assumes it's John come back from the dead, right? Just this kind of superstitious idea because he feels guilty. He's like, oh, this must be John. And so he's wrong. It's not John. Yet he's right because in Jesus, he's seeing a man over whom death has no hold over whom the brokenness of this world has no hold. As he hears about Jesus, this man who is healing people left and right, this man who is making the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, this man who is raising people from the dead. Herod hears about this man, and he rightly assumes that, that death has no power over him. And I think in, in this assumption by, by Herod, we actually see Herod pointing to the fact that, that Jesus is going to not only be killed, but he's going to rise from the dead. And it's in Jesus that, that we have hope that all things that are wrong will be made right. All things that are broken will be healed and made whole. It's in Jesus that we have hope of healing and of peace and of joy. As I've said before from the Lord of the Rings, all sad things will become untrue. That is who Jesus is. That is what he's come to do. Not only die for our sin, but rise from the dead and one day return and make all things right. And this is especially good news on a, on a weekend where we, where we don't celebrate, we remember those who have died in war. Because it's because of Jesus and in him that we have the hope that there will be no more wars. There will be no more need for people to sacrifice their lives. This is, this is good news on, on a week after we've seen 
children murdered. Because it's in Jesus that we have hope of life, of resurrection, where we will live in a world where, where there will be no more murder and no more suffering and no more pain. This is good news. I've uh, uh, read, um, or maybe I think I've made reference to uh, one of my favorite musical artists. His name's Andy Minio, and he's a hip-hop artist, hip-hop musician, and um, he's a Christian. And, and one of his songs uh, on his early album, it's, it's called, I think it's called Death Has Died. And uh, the second verse, um, the second half of the second verse, this, the second verse he, he talks about actually the, the tragedy at Sandy Hook. Um, and the second half of the verse goes like this. I'll just read this to you. It says, one day my God gonna crack the sky. He gonna bottle up every tear that we ever cried. Bring truth to every lie, justice for every crime. All shame will be gone and we'll never have to hide. No more broken hearts. No more broken homes. No more locking doors. No more cops patrolling. No abusive words or abusive touches. No more cancerous cells that'll, make, that'll take our loved ones. No more hungry kids. No more natural disaster. No child will ever have to ask where his dad is. No funerals where we wear all black. And death will be dead and we'll lock the casket. This is the good news. In a world where we have to face a lot of senselessness and pain and loss. Herod gets it somewhat, even though he misses the point completely. <laughs> and this is, I think, where we can feel sorry for Herod. We can feel sorry for him. You know, he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead to judge him, to punish him. But the truth was that Jesus, the one John was pointing to, is the author, the giver of life. And Jesus was the promise of something Herod couldn't even fathom healing and joy and wholeness that Herod couldn't even begin to grasp. Herod was feeling guilty about what he had done at this party, this feast. Something had pleased him, and he had done what he wanted to do. Jesus offered him a promise of a feast and a party where he will experience pleasure forevermore that he, he can't even comprehend. If he would only have sought out Jesus, received Jesus, listened to Jesus, no matter how he failed here, he could have had life. He could have had what Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the good news. Herod could have had it. We can have it. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would help us to take your invitation to see Jesus and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, the promise of all things being, being made right, the promise of life and joy that we might feast with you.
find our pleasure in you. And that we might be changed. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.